I wish I could just uh, transport you all to Providence. It would be fun to get a, a, a welcome like this at, at, at Providence College. I actually was here. We finally figured it out, my wife and I. Uh, I was here in 2002. Um, I, 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 I was here with darker hair in 2002, as, uh, as Professor Rice has duly noted. Uh, <laughs> I, I remember the first time that I came here. Um, I, I, I didn't know what to expect. I had not visited many colleges back then. I mean, this was sort of the first school other than Providence College that I'd gone to visit to, to see what life was like uh, there. And, and I thought at the time that, um, that I was coming to, uh, uh, I, I was going to see what a Catholic college looked like. Providence College struggles to be a Catholic college. And we've had more victories lately than defeats, but. Uh, I thought, now oh, I'll get to see what a real Catholic college was like. And, and the funny thing was, I did see that, but I, I saw for the first time perhaps in my life what a college of any kind looked like. That is, a, a group of people who um, are pursuing the same sorts of ends together, who know one another, actually eat together. The, most, the, the thing that impressed me most was that well, you could go to mass together and then have what's called lunch together. And, um, and, and not have the students uh, cordoned off from the faculty um, in, in uh, sanitized rooms or something. It, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. And um, my wife and I talked about it for days afterwards. Anyway, I should start. Um, thank you all for, for, for uh, inviting me. Um, a couple of years ago, as, as Dr. O'Donnell said, I, I, I wrote a book called um, Ten Ways to Destroy the Imagination of Your Child, um, in, in case it, television and the schools had um, fallen down on the job. Um, <laughs> the, 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 they are actually quite adept at, at that. Um, but just in case you wanted to make sure that the task was completed, I wrote this book. The book is a kind of polemic against all the foolish and f fundamentally cruel things we do to our children. I, I don't have to tell you at, at Christendom College what I mean by that word, children. Um, if, if I were at uh, the place in Charlottesville, I might have to say that in olden times, men and women used to get together in what was called marriage, and they produced these little copies of themselves. Um, <laughs> I might get in trouble if I said that there, but um. anyway, the cruel things that we do to our children to cramp them uh, and at best to ready them for um, contemporary life, that is to say the, the hamster treadmill of contemporary life where, uh, where one is um, continually busy to no end. Um, a, a, great, a great emblem, I think, for the, the sin of sloth, the, the characteristic sin of our age. Um, we, we have them do energetic and pointless things, uh, things that they do not actually love, but they are encouraged to do so that they can put them on a resume in order to get into best preschool. Um, <laughs> all to prepare them uh, for this uh, uh, a thing called a career, um, 
and uh, what what the worth is of that, we are never quite told. You know, uh, I, I sometimes think that people will end up putting on their tombstones epitaph. I was uh, vice president in charge of personnel at the Podunk Credit Union. Um, okay, all right. Uh, that and death um, is um, is your life there. That's that's interesting. I like the old meaning of career, which suggested undirected racing or careening from one wall to another. <laughs> so, so in that book, uh, I, I, I used an ironically diabolical voice, um, which comes naturally to me as an Italian. Uh, I, I urged parents to take their children, uh, that's my secret purpose, was to urge them to take the children off the treadmill so that they could once again do the human things lie on their backs on the grass to look up at the sky. Actually still divide the world into those people who would do that, even if someone might be looking, and those who would never do that. Um, don't marry anyone who would never do that. <laughs> There's a whole glorious world out there for the children to wonder at and to wonder in. It used to be called outside. And then, too, there's an even more glorious world for the children to encounter, an inside, if you will, to be found in those strange creatures called other people. And by the way, I'm waiting for popular magazine magnates to get the idea of complementing uh, such magazines as self um, with magazines entitled Other People for a Change. Um, <laughs> And I, I actually, I just informally here, you know, I, I'm Italian, I'm going to talk. Uh, I, I wonder what kind of person could buy Self magazine without embarrassment and pay for it at the counter? I mean, it's like hanging a sign on you saying, um, I am a self-absorbed twit. It, it, <laughs> uh, anyway. <laughs> I, I hope that parents will introduce their children to those strange creatures called other people, especially especially that they might wander in the strangest creatures of all. Those that are like me, but not at all like me. Those with, for me, the smooth chins and the gentle voices. Or, for some of you here, those with the broad shoulders and the far-seeing eyes, <laughs> creatures of that other sex. How do we encounter that vast world beside us and the world of the sexes, the world of love? Um, I've been reading a lot of Hans Urs von Balthasar lately. And uh, in what I think is a brilliant philosophical work, Father von Balthasar leads the reader through an intricate analysis of what it means to be a knowing subject and also an object of knowledge. He's got a fascinating project in the book. He's, he seeks to demolish um, the, 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 the philosophical errors that have held modern man bound in a kind of hypnotic daze since Descartes and, and Francis Bacon. For them, both Descartes and Bacon, knowledge is power, and power is domination. Um, it's the extraction from the object, which is always considered a lifeless thing, uh, uh, extraction from the object of those measurable features that we can put to use, 
the project is confessedly reductive. If I hold a lump of coal in my hand for a Baconian or a Cartesian, this is not a thing of mysterious beauty. It, it's glossy black surface having been pressed into smoothness by the slow work of centuries. I may happen to know that, but it's of no importance to me. It's only a coagulation of carbon. And if it's burned in a certain fashion, it'll yield up a certain number of calories. That's what it is good for. And suddenly, we, it's, over time, I guess, we begin to think that that's all that it is. Bird I see pecking at seeds in the yard. That bird, that bird is not a hen. It's a protein machine um, to be trammeled up in a cage. And, stuffed with chemicals so as to produce meat at a certain rate per dollar of feed and with a certain content of fat. Um, I, I hope that these examples suffice to suggest that if knowledge is reduced to that which gives me dominion over a thing for its profitable use, if that's what knowledge is, then the defect is not in the thing that is so used, but in the user. It's not the chicken that is blind, but the chicken manufacturer. If we're really to know a thing, Father von Balthasar says, we have to open ourselves up to the mystery of its being. We surrender ourselves to it in humility. There is no, for von Balthasar, there is no true knowledge without humility. Its own disclosure of itself and our receptive listening to it, he says, are but two forms of a single self-gift. So love is essential to the act of knowing. For, I'm quoting now, knowledge can be explained only by and for love. Knowledge can only be explained by love, and knowledge can only be explained for for the purpose of love. According to von Balthasar, we see the action of love in the structure of knowledge most powerfully when the object of our knowledge, that which we seek to know, is not a piece of coal from 50,000 years ago, but a subject too, a free being who can choose to reveal himself to us or not upon whose self-revelation we depend if we're to attain any deep knowledge of him at all, another person, a personal being. Then, he says, we see a kind of reversal in the relationship of the subject and the object. The one who knows, the one who seeks to know, very far now from a, some kind of Baconian experimenter slicing up a corpse to disentangle its nerves and arteries, um, as much as that might be a useful thing to do, um, in, in, in a real relationship, when you're trying to get to know this free being, a personal being, the person who wishes to know is more clearly the patient, the one who has to wait, the receiver, the one who must uh, um, uh, wait upon the initiative of the object of knowledge, waiting in love for the revelation, a revelation that is born of love. Nor is the object of our love, the only beneficiary. That is, when I go forth out of myself to love another, 
the beneficiary is not simply the person that I love. He says, we can know ourselves truly only when we communicate ourselves in love. But the act of communication depends upon the reverence of somebody else, someone else, someone who rejoices in the mystery of our being. We, in other words, we don't really even know ourselves until what we are is revealed back to us by the people who receive our revelation in love. Um, so true is this that the lover may come to know us better than we know ourselves. And I'm quoting again, many wait only for someone to love them in order to become who they always could have been from the beginning. You know this is true. It is not good for the man to be alone, says God in Genesis. If you think about it, this is the first time in scripture that God, who's been creating the whole universe, even West Virginia, um, <laughs> I would say New Jersey. Is there anyone here from New Jersey? Yeah? Um, do, do you know that the New Jersey state motto comes from Dante? Did you know? Lasciate ogni speranza voi che entrate. It's on the gates over hell. It says, abandon all hope, you who enter here. <laughs> I, I tell my students that all the time. <laughs> so God says, it is not good for the man to be alone. And it's the first time in scripture that he's declared that something is not good. He has said that everything was good, and that the whole of it was very good. Now he says, it is not good. In point of fact, if the man is alone, he's not yet wholly a man. He needs another like himself. And that's when God creates woman and presents her to Adam, who cries out, this at last, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Yet, Eve is not simply a different person from Adam. Um, it's more than that, isn't it? Uh, he didn't create Friday for Robinson Crusoe. In the very separation of the sexes, one from the other, alike but unlike, we find so to speak, the heart of what it means to know and to be known, to love and to be loved. I hope this is not too philosophical an opening for my lecture here. I'm begging your patience. But I know you guys study a lot of philosophy. <laughs> Consider the attitude of someone who has reduced knowledge to facticity that can be put to use. For such a person, to know a thing is to have analyzed a thing's measurable features so as to make them use of them for profit or pleasure. Beauty is defined as what happens to please the beholder for his purposes, and not as the resplendent glory of the object's inner nature. Now, if you take that point of view, what is such a person going to think of the sexes? Imagine a debased Baconian writing a sex education manual. We'll find all the tabs and slots duly labeled. Actually, that's the subtitle for one of my chapters, 10 Ways to Destroy the Imagination of Your Child. Um, uh, ins insert tab A into slot B. Um, so reduce love to sex and sex to hygiene. Um, all, of, all, this, all of those things will be duly labeled. The physical functions, 
described with clinical detachment, a detachment that is a cover for a deep prurience, literally an itch, an itch to splay a thing out in naked facticity, so that all the sense of mystery will be destroyed. Persons are not addressed but appetites, and the parts of a machine, one's own machine or another person's machine, to employ in the satisfaction of those appetites. Even a stomach or an intestine would be more lovely than that, and not rightly to be described in merely mechanical terms. But here we're talking about the sexes, oriented in their physical and, I believe, in their psych psycho psychological natures, one to the other, for the act that binds them to one another in that one flesh union that bridges time past and time to come. I suppose it's of some consolation, even in our foolish time, that uh, like moss growing in the cracks of ugly concrete, there's still some shallow-rooted attachment of one sex for the other. Boys still like girls. I think they do. And girls still like boys. Maybe, I guess. <laughs> I'm not sure whether they enjoy the full glory of that attraction, that delight in the mystery of the other sex. Never perhaps have popular magazines, I'm thinking of those ghastly things I mentioned before, right? Um, whose covers strike my eye whenever I have to pick up a prescription at a drugstore to see these things. Um, uh, ne never before have they had more to say about the mechanics and, 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 and the superficies, right? Surfaces of the sexes. Unless of any genuine sense of what a boy or a girl or a man or a woman really is. It's as if we believed we could come to know what a hen is from studying x-rays of the poor bird fattened in a feeding cage. And not that awkward and comical and, yes, mysterious creature perching upon the coop and ruffling its feathers to the air. What effect this flattening, a loveless flattening, has to do, uh, has upon our capacity to learn anything at all I'll discuss shortly. And first, a couple of examples of the contrary, a true receptivity to the mysterious sex. And, and of course, the mysterious sex is always the other sex. Right? Behold two scenes from the plays of Shakespeare. And if you are from UVA, the, um, he was a playwright in the uh, <laughs> English Renaissance. Um, <laughs> One, one is at the court of a wicked duke. He has usurped the throne from his brother and sent him into exile in the forests, forest of Arden. His daughter and his niece Rosalind, however, are bosom friends. They suffer together the evil that he has done. They bear it with a fine blend of youthful sprightliness and sadness. So this duke, is attempting to ease the tensions of his court with a little bit of entertainment, a series of wrestling matches. His favorite, the court favorite, Charles, has already thrown all the challengers, breaking the neck of one young man so that he must be carried away in peril of his life. To this court, then, the two young ladies come, 
and they meet there a handsome young man named Orlando. He is the chief wrestler's final challenger. He does not seem a match for the champion. Be like the guy next to you here tonight going up against Hulk Hogan or something. Um, so the girls approach him and they plead with him so that he'll give up the challenge and preserve his life. Now, of course, you, any guy knows that as soon as your mother says, um, Johnny, do not climb that cliff, <laughs> all at once the cliff becomes three times as inviting, and, and, and the doubts that you had that you could climb the cliff seem suddenly to disappear. It's beautiful young girls come up to you and say, do not wrestle that, that wrestler, for he will uh, throw you and, and, and hurt you. Uh, uh, now, of course, if, 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 if anything, he needs all the more to, to engage in the wrestling. So in reply, the young man reveals something of himself. Just like the niece, Rosalind, whose father has been banished, he is lonely and he has suffered. He doesn't wish to deny the fair ladies any request, he says, but rather he pleads for their good wishes to go with him. It hardly matters otherwise if he loses. And he says this, I shall do my friends no wrong, for I have none to lament me. The world no injury, for in it I have nothing. Only in the world I fill up a place which may be better supplied when I have made it empty. And at this moment, Rosalind, remember her father has been banished. She is smitten. Orlando is brave, manly, eloquent in a rough kind of way. A profound mystery. The little strength I have, she says, I would it were with you. Now let's pause here to consider what Rosalind says. In, in Shakespeare's play, this is from As You Like It, right? There is no silly pretense that Rosalind could actually throw a right cross and send the champion sprawling. We do not have computer-generated gener images. <laughs> she confesses that she has, quote, little strength. Yet how often does the slenderness of a woman's arm belie the mighty pulses of her heart? We'll witness throughout the play the strength of Rosalind's purpose, her solid good sense, and her resolute love. What strength she has she does not hoard up for herself, but she offers it as a gift, a gift to this man. Orlando embarks upon the perilous fight, and he throws his opponent. Oh, excellent young man, cries Rosalind. <laughs> He's victorious. And it's the champion who has to be carried off. And the champion, by the way, can't speak a word. They say, Charles, are you all right? He's. Uh, catatonic. He's out, unable to speak. But when Orlando reveals his name to the Duke, this is the usurping Duke, telling him that he is the youngest son of Sir Roland de Bois, the Duke, constrained by his own guilty conscience, dismisses him curtly. I would thou hadst been son to some man else. The world esteemed thy father honorable, but I did find him still mine enemy. Thou'dst better please me with another father. Parting shot to Orlando. 
So the Duke exits, incapable of love and resisting the truth. But Rosalind now has yet another reason to hold this lad in high esteem. She says, my father loved Sir Roland as his soul, and all the world was of my father's mind. Thus the beauty of a friendship we hear of but do not see, that between her father and his father, um, since Sir Roland has passed away, persists into the next generation and helps to beget a new love. Rosalind approaches Orlando. She gives him a keepsake. He cannot speak. <laughs> but it's not a speechlessness born of physical incapacity. It's not a speechlessness uh, caused by the fact that you are unconscious because you've just lost the wrestling match. He considers himself but a rude farmer boy by comparison with this beautiful girl of the court. He is all arms and legs. He's all wristbone and cowlick. In his very strength, he stands as if he were exposed to the world. His muscular courage conceals the shyness of a boy. But the girl approaches him, she with her gentle voice and her tender limbs. She approaches him, and she boldly confesses her own weakness, saying, Sir, you have wrestled well and overthrown more than your enemies. It's a wonderful scene, isn't it? <laughs> Another scene. Another scene from Shakespeare. We're at a sheep shearing party. Country lass is the center of attention. She's dressed as mistress of the feast. That means she's got to get up in, in a, rather an outlandish outfit, but she, she's, she's a bit abashed by it. Her, her natural shyness makes her embarrassed to be so. But that embarrassment, that blushing, causes her to appear all the lovelier in the eyes of those who look upon her, especially the young man who has pledged his love. Now he, also in disguise, is the prince of the kingdom. His name is Florizel, though he has not yet revealed that fact to the old shepherd who is the girl's father, as everyone believes. It turns out not to be so, but he's revealed it to her, but not to anybody else. She, Perdita, is the lost daughter of a king, though neither she nor anyone present at the party knows that. She decks the guests with flowers, and in a flight of girlish desire, she says she wishes to see Florizel, this young man, strewn with blossoms, quote, like a bank for love to lie and play on. And that she blushes and says it must be the robe that she's wearing that's changed her disposition, making her blurt out something like that. But Florizel won't admit that she can ever be out of place, says he. And this, by the way, is one of the most magnificent little poems of love, the appreciation in a, in a man of the beauty of a woman. What you do, he says, don't worry that you're doing anything unusual now. What you do still betters what is done. When you speak, sweet, I'd have you do it ever. When you sing, I'd have you buy and sell so, so give alms, pay so, sorry, that should be pray so, and for the ordering your affairs to sing them too. 
When you do dance, I wish you would wave the sea, that you might ever do nothing but that, move still, still so, and own no other function. Each your doings, so singular in each particular, crowns what you're doing in the present deeds, that all your acts are queens. As I said, I think it's one of the most profound expressions of love in all of literature. Not because it focuses upon the feelings of the lover or upon the stripped, splayed out body of the beloved. As mysterious as a wave of the sea, so mysterious and lovely are the movements of Perdita when she dances. Florizel whimsically imagines Perdita singing as she does the most mundane things. Because when she sings, that's all he ever wants her to do. But his words cause us to see and hear Perdita doing just that, as if when she buys and sells, when she gives alms to a beggar, when she orders some groceries, she in fact does sing, though only the lover can hear the melody. One cannot generalize from Perdita. There are no abstract laws that will account for her actions and dispel the mystery. She's particular. There is no one like her in the world. In this regard, she is like all human beings, except it, that her extraordinary goodness and innocence throw that mystery, the mystery of all human beings, into high relief. What she does is so singular in each particular. And is that never-to-be-replicated singularity, the beauty of the existence, not of women, but of this, particular woman that reveals her to the eyes of her lover, that causes him to exclaim that all her acts are queens. He knows Perdita, and he cannot ever come to an end of knowing her. To know someone as holy and as good as Perdita is to know that you are only ever just beginning to know. He does not know that she is a princess, but in fact, he does know it, though that's not something that can be known in the sense of a fact that is logged and dispensed with. Even a sunset or a tree, as von Balthasar says, is always more than itself, not less. And that is all the more true of the beauty of a virtuous woman beheld by a virtuous man. Now, I hope it caused no controversy to note, I guess it will cause controversy here, but if I were at um, um, the, um, the four-year community college on the opposite side of the city from Providence College, Brown University, um, <laughs> it, it, it probably would cause controversy. But here it won't cause controversy. You are, you are, you are smiling too much for it to be controversial um, to note that in the scenes, in both of these scenes, the sexes are not interchangeable. Okay? What is interchangeable is of no importance. I can interchange one battery in a robot for another precisely and only because the particular battery does not matter. There's also no sense of beauty attached to what may be replaced without harm. Nobody says, that cog in that machine is really beautiful. Why? Because I can replace it with one just like it and there'd be no, no difference. Um, we, we don't say of an air by Mozart that the beauty of a particular run of notes 
depends upon their being replaceable with any old run. Um, we say instead that the art is so well-crafted that we can't imagine it otherwise. We don't wish it otherwise. We're overcome with astonishment and gratitude that it is what it is. Nor can we come to an end of fathoming its beauty or its very being. So too with Rosalind and Orlando, with Perdita and Florizel. It's not simply that we can't reverse the sexes in these scenes without lapsing into absurdity. Orlando, for instance, falling in love with a lady wrestler and giving her a necklace to wear in his honor. Um, it's, it's rather that these characters, in the depths of their sexual being, cannot cease to fascinate us if our hearts are open to the truth. Each is, in one sense, unveiled to us. Perdita is the essential young woman, gracious to everyone, yet passionately in love with a fine young man. But in that unveiling, there is revealed to us the existence of ever more profound mystery. There is always, as I said before, always more and more to know, more that yet dwells behind the veil. The shepherd, who is supposed to be Perdita's father, he's not, but the people at the feast don't know this, speaks to one of the other feasters in, in disguise, right, um, who happens to be Florizel's father spying on him. And um, so the shepherd father, and this is, this is this is somebody evidently named Jed or Jethro, okay, um, but speaks most profoundly. The shepherd father says about Perdita and Florizel, if he do light upon her, if he do light upon her, she, sh she shall bring him that which he not dreams of. She shall bring him that which he not dreams of. I love it when the great poets, who are always so specific, are vague. <laughs> He's always doing it on purpose. That pronoun, that, she shall bring him that which he not dreams of, in its very indefiniteness, is the closest the old man can come to the inexhaustible goodness of a woman as pure as Perdita. What is that which he not dreams of? If heaven is, as my friend Dante puts it, to live in loving necessarily, then heaven is both the answer to our dreams and that which we cannot dream of. Jesus says to us, seek and you shall find. But the converse is also true, that they who find the truth shall seek all the more in that reveling in the depths of love that unites knowledge with the joy of a small child dipping his toes into the vast ocean beyond. For the lover, that is to say, for the soul that has found the truth and fallen in love with it, there is never an only in his thought, but always still more and more. And perhaps this is the meaning of that mysterious saying of Jesus, that to them who have, more will be given. But from them who have not, I will say, from the programmatic reducers and deniers of this world, for whom only is almost the only word in the lexicon. I mean, those who say that a man or woman is only a creature with certain insignificant organs, or only a set of culturally induced prejudices from them who have not, and who do not wish to have, 
who find nothing and seek nothing, even that little they have will be taken away from them. So I, I hope you'll see then the connection I wish to draw here between a healthy imagination and the readiness to delight in the goodness of each sex, rather than to scorn it, to ignore it, to pervert it, or to pretend that it doesn't exist. For God has given men to women and women to men, not only to prolong the species, which it happens to be the case, um, but to open our minds. So then, keeping in mind the mystery that each sex presents to the other, the mystery of maleness and femaleness that runs, as von Balthasar says, like a fissure through the whole animal world, presents to us in the most potent way the fact that genuine knowledge must spring from love as fruit springs, springs from the flower. If we keep this mystery in mind, what will be the virtue that honors that mystery? What will that virtue have to do with both the growing awareness of man and woman for one another and with the development of their minds and souls more generally as young people, as children? What is the role of a teacher or a school in the encouragement of that virtue? whatever virtue it may be. Uh, let me say at the outset, the virtue I'm looking for is not abstinence. It is not even temperance. I might well abstain from eating rich food because I am training for the wrestling arena. I might abstain from sexual intercourse because I do not wish to be saddled with a debilitating disease. Or as they used to say in the army videos back in World War II, don't let this happen to you. Right? <laughs> Um, <laughs> if, if we learned that Orlando had been preparing for the wrestling match by a dietary regimen, that would add nothing to our esteem for his youth and manhood. If anything, it would undercut the power of the match, which is a public revelation, not of the strength of his body so much as the honor of his being. He is, as he says, the youngest son of Sir Roland of Boys. Florizel assures Perdita that she's nothing to fear from the merry sheep-shearing feast, nor need she be embarrassed by their costumes, since even the gods took on various shapes for love, though their loves were not as chaste as his, he says, since my desires run not before mine honor, nor my lusts burn hotter than my faith. Now suppose he had said to Perdita, Hey, you needn't worry about me, since I've kept myself clean of, um, you know, that disease there. The French disease. <laughs> Would that make him in our minds a finer young man? Wouldn't it make him into a petty calculator of advantages to himself? A man unworthy of Perdita's surpassing beauty. No, when we possess something holy, or when we behold something holy, it's not enough to say that we don't hire it out for use. It's what we do with it, not what we decline to do with it, that defines the proper virtue. We cherish it. We give it due reverence. We keep it veiled in our hearts, not because we're afraid of it or ignorant of it, but because we know that no public presentation of it can ever do it justice. We ourselves cannot fathom its profundity. The virtue that honors what is holy especially as it is veiled and made manifest in the bodies and hearts and minds of man as man and woman as woman is purity. 
abstinence is defined by absence and refraining. But purity is rather an essential light radiating from the core of the holy. If we owned a masterpiece by Caravaggio, my favorite painting, say, The Conversion of St. Paul, we would not say, we must exercise abstinence with regard to this painting and refrain from spitting upon it. <laughs> Rather, we should be ashamed to dishonor it so. We would wish to keep the work in its special place, in a certain sense, hidden, protected from the common vulgarities of the day, precisely to guard it, to honor it, to veil it, and to reveal it in its own special light. Purity does not deny the power of sex. Rather, it rejoices in that power. It is impurity that degrades, denies, and despises. Consider again the scene between Orlando and Rosalind. Suppose a modern actress were to, and they do this in productions of Shakespeare and other classical uh, uh, dramas, epic poems. They do this and it makes me say, why do I even subject myself and my wife to the uh, to, to the tedium of watching a movie based on the Odyssey when they're going to do what they're going to do. Uh, suppose a modern actress were to game the scene by writhing with physical desire, laying herself in a sense naked to the audience, but in actuality extinguishing the radiance of her sex by the smoke of lust. She would immediately put us in the position of jaded sophisticates who know everything there is to know about the attraction of these two young people, which is to say, not much at all. Or consider the scene between Florizel and Perdita. Suppose a modern actor, while saying, nor my lusts burn hotter than my faith, were to slip his hand under Perdita's gown while she gave a little appreciative squeal and pushed the hand away. Oh, the audience would surely laugh the knowing laugh of the ignorant, the cynical laugh of those swaddled up in their own savoir-faire. The critics would praise the direction for being edgy, which is another word for dull. <laughs> for the dabbling in impurity does nothing but obscure. We might laugh, we might chuckle, C.S. Lewis has interesting things to say in the Screwtape Letters about this form of love, which is as far removed from mirth as it is possible to be. We might laugh, but we would not be invited into the interior castle of love. There would be no interior. It would be all exterior. But I don't mean to say that in being all exterior, it would have at least the virtue of being honest. Quite the contrary. It would be rather utterly dishonest utterly untrue to reality. Cynic is the last person to ask about reality. When I say that purity guards the sanctuary of sexual being, I'm not clouding it with incense so as to deceive the unwary. The mystery genuinely exists. If we attend to it for but a moment, we'll see that this is so. Every cell of my body is inscribed with the masculinity of my being. The very hairs of your head are numbered, says Jesus. We might well add that they are numbered as a man's hairs or as a woman's hairs. The two are not alike. Within the woman's body is the womb, the haven of all new human life. Within the man's body are the seeds needed to fructify the egg in that womb. Each of us carries within ourselves 
precious and unique strand of the history, the whole human race. When my father and mother were married, they were both of them virgins. They gave themselves to one another wholly, having reserved themselves to one another alone. In the church they pledged their troth, but in the secret chamber of their love, they conferred the sacrament upon one another. They did what their mothers and fathers did and their mothers and fathers before them. They engaged in the act of marriage. They engaged in the act of life. From out of the billions of possibilities they bore within their bodies, I was born. Creature came into being, bound to the far past and oriented toward the future. A baby boy whose mind, like that of all children, already bore the potential to become vaster than all the rest of the physical universe and whose soul, as we Christians affirm, was rooted in the absolute being of God and oriented towards him as towards its ultimate love and joy and fulfillment. If this is not a mystery, then nothing is. If this does not warrant the guardianship and care of purity, then nothing does. And if this is denied, if this is splayed out and dissected, if this is reduced to mere facticity, as we, if we could arrive at the essential beauty of man and woman by means of forceps and calipers, then I say that the very possibility that young people may attain wisdom is severely curtailed or destroyed. There's a parallel between the reduction of truth and the reduction of love. Consider that the young people on our campuses bear within their bodies a tremendous gift whereby they cooperate with the creative power of God. And in case there is somebody here from UVA, if the phrase strikes you as too controversial, um, whereby they are united with all of the time past and potentially united with time to come. Consider the essential meaning of the unveiling. When a man and woman give themselves to one another as man and as woman, that is, as begetter and conceiver, as the bringer of life and the shelter of life, as the sower and the field, now strip away that meaning. Separate the act from its biological truth. Separate the body, which is now considered a, a machine, an instrument, like, like a hose or a funnel. Separate that from personal being. Deny the manhood of the man and the womanhood of the woman. What remains? Not love, not joy, not even mirth. Joy's amiable hillbilly cousin. What remains is the itch of hedonism and utilitarian calculus to scratch the itch. Now let's take the argument one step farther. The denuding of our sexes and the losses we incur is but the most disappointing part of our denuding the world. It is hard for me to imagine someone who smirks and sneers at the purity of Florizel and Perdita, but who looks upon an orange blossom with wonder. Maybe it's possible. All kinds of human contradictions are possible, I suppose. But it would be a contradiction. Eventually, they who deny that there is any special beauty in man and woman, and who deny that this beauty is a precious gift from one sex to the other, will deny the beauty of much less obviously beautiful things and the profundity of much less obviously profound mysteries. The libido dominandi, that great phrase from St. Augustine, lust for domination, is also a libido despicendi, 
a lust to despise, a lust to look down upon things, a lust to reduce and to deny. We say that love is blind, but I prefer the wisdom of Richard of St. Victor, great medieval mystic, who said, ubi amor, ibi oculus, where there is love, there is an eye to see. It is instead the lust of domination or the lust of despising that casts a film over our eyes, prevents us from seeing by teaching us that what is apparent to our eyes is all there is to see. So it may well be that the greatest harm caused by the sexual revolution, which might well be called the asexual revolution, substitution of hygiene for purity and the latex balloon, excuse me, for the bridal veil. The greatest harm is not physical or political, those harms are great, but intellectual and spiritual. Yes, there are now millions of children born out of wedlock and millions more who will not know all their lives long the complementary love of a mother and father bound to one another. Yes, it has resulted in neighborhoods laid bare to the depredations of bad men. Yes, it has supplanted the freedom-making vitality of the family with the freedom-consuming and deadening protection of the state. All these calamities ought to be condemned. We ought to strive against them and for the health of the family with all our might. But in the meantime, let's also note well the souls of the young people around us. What brings them wonder? The poetry they read is splayed out, its nerves numbered and labeled. This here is a patriarchal construct. This here is a capitalist ganglion. This here is the locus of social class. Philosophy is resolved into logic or lame empiricism, hobbling after the big boys in the natural sciences and pleading to carry water for them on the sidelines. Those scientists themselves are harried masters of reduction, hectically competing for a grant here or a laboratory there. The social sciences have abandoned the careful and loving study of mankind. They desire instead to exert their own mastery by the application of theory to all things human. I actually have a kind of materialist theory about theory. Um, I think that the excess of theory in certain people is caused by a, uh, a swelling of, uh, uh, of the theroid gland, hyperthyroidism. Um, the, the, the theroid gland is a little known one to be located at the base of the spine. Um, And, and, and the young people swim in this pool. They get drunk, they bed down, they cram for tests. They learn how to use the master tools. They write reductive papers, they sport their credentials. What is there in all this mad rush to dominate that rightly bears the name of love or truth? Not much, I think. But I wish to leave you with another scene, and maybe it's a scene the like of which you folks here at Christendom College have seen. It did not play, take place, though, this, this scene at a college. I doubt whether it could take place at many a college, but maybe here. It was at a state park in New York. Uh, I was recently married and on vacation with my wife, so naturally we had had a quarrel. Um, <laughs> we were in a bad mood, I don't remember why. She had just gone off to phone her mother to tell her where we were staying. And so I was waiting for her to come back. And, and I looked out in the field in front of me at the state park in Watkins Glen, New York. And there stood a young man. This is upstate New York, so there are Mennonites around. He was a Mennonite. He's wearing a white shirt and black knickers. He was well-built, obviously a farmer, farmer boy, right? 
well-built if you're farming, and handsome. He was smiling, and he was speaking in a very animated way. He, maybe he was an Italian Mennonite because he was using his mouth. <laughs> <you know>? uh, <laughs> he was speaking to a young woman. She was seated on a bench in front of him. She was dressed in a light blue gown with white uh, sleeves. She had her hands folded in her lap, and she was looking at him like this, and he was looking down at her like, like, like this. They had eyes for one another alone. I thought for a moment that I walked into an alternate universe. <laughs> I hadn't done that. I hadn't walked into an alternate universe, because that is the real world right there. The world that honors the mysterious beauty of the sexes is not imaginary or distant. It is genuine, and it is near if we would but open our hearts to receive it. If we do, I dare say, we will not simply set ourselves up for a happier marriage and nicer children. That may be true. But we do not practice the virtue of purity for it, what it will help us obtain. We practice it because it is right and just. The reward comes from the virtue itself. We'll not only see the sexes in their beauty, we'll become the sorts of people who delight in that vision. We'll become, I suggest tonight, the sorts of people who may behold the lowliest thing, the chicken on the fence, or the orange blossom on the tree, and enter into the mystery and the truth. Thank you. preaching to the choir here. Uh, um, thank you, thank you very much. Now, uh, I, I am I'm Italian, so you know, if you don't ask me questions, I will be offended. Uh, <laughs> so uh, now there's time for questions, if you have any. Um, I'm not telling anything that y'all all don't already know, um, but perhaps I tell it in a particular way. Yes, sir. Yes. Yes. In the book of num numbers, numbers. Um, <laughs> in the book of numbers. In Genesis. Yes. Um, Adam also says to God, "The woman you gave me." Yes. So he sells her out. Yes. Yes. You know, I have a grand time with this when I'm teaching Paradise Lost, right? Um, because Milton, Milton plays it for all it's worth. Um, Milton has Adam take up about 20, 25 lines saying, uh, you know, uh, I, I should probably hide the truth from you, um, but I don't know what purpose it would serve, seeing as you already know the truth because you are omniscient. Uh, I should shield the person that uh, you gave me to protect since, you know, I do 
love her and all that is my job, but uh, after all of that, that woman that you made for me, the one who's so perfect, so acceptable, she gave me up the fruit and I did eat. It's Adam's lowest moment in Paradise Lost. And, and um, uh, the, the funny thing is that, that what Milton has done is placed in Adam here a vice that we would more normally associate with woman. Um, the the uh, talkative excuse making, okay? The bad man um, becomes a parody of a woman, okay? Um, and and now the, the interesting thing is that um, uh, the Lord then says to Eve, woman, what is this which thou hast done? And Eve, says Milton, it's, it takes two lines, neither bold nor lo loquacious before her maker said. And this is a one-line sentence. Indeed, it's a one-line paragraph. The serpent me beguiled and I did eat. Okay. Stunning. I mean, she's still passing the flame, but it's serpent me beguiled and I did eat. Now, uh, Milton does not l leave Adam in the, those shameful depths. Adam will resume his place later on in Paradise Lost as a kind of rightful head of this household. Um, but, uh, you, you, you know, it, it, I, think, I think there's a, there's a kind of infernal parody of complementarity in the vices that attach themselves to men and women, too. Um, and when men and women uh, abandon the virtues that they have at least a fighting chance to obtain, okay, um, they do not then, a, a man who abandons, for instance, the quest for manlyhood does not become a good woman. Um, he becomes, there's a word for it, uh, uh, it's not polite, um, okay. <laughs> Uh, and, and a woman who abandons those virtues that she has a fighting chance to obtain, um, the virtues associated with womanliness, does not then become a really fine man, um, but um, something else, right? Am uh, I answering the question a bit? Yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I think there are infernal parodies of these complementarities, too, which need to be watched out for. Um, other questions? Questions about Dante? <laughs> Questions about Genesis? About numbers? <laughs> yes, sir. Yes. Yeah, I, 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 I know I'm preaching to choir when I, I talk in this vein. Um, you all have been introduced to the works of Joseph Pieper. It's students, uh, raise hands, Joseph Pieper. Okay, that, that's, that's a decent number. I, I highly recommend uh, a book called a Leisure, The Basis of Culture. And while you're at it, um, read um, The Death of the Modern World by Romano Guardini, uh, which is in much the same vein. Um, one of the things that, that Pieper said in this book, and this is a book that changed my life, it was actually Matthew Cudaback, the kid brother of Professor John Cudaback right here, who, who, who urged me to read that book, and it really did change my mind about many things. It's been about 12, 13 years now. 
Um, Joseph Pieper says that sloth is mischaracterized as laziness, uh, that is physical laziness. What it is, if you go back to the medieval writers, if you go back to Thomas, um, he's quite clear about this, sloth is the incapacity, a kind of willed refusal to take delight in what should legitimately bring you delight, especially spiritual goods, okay? In other words, sloth has very little to do with how many calories you are expending. It has to do with the torpor of your soul. And in that vein, he says, it's the besetting sin of modern man because modern man Modern man no longer knows what it is to have a feast. Thomas Aquinas says that sloth is the sin against the Sabbath. And you think, well, how can that be in the Sabbath you're supposed to rest? But the rest of the Sabbath is a rest of joy. It's, it's, it's kind of rest of activity, spiritual activity, joyfulness, mirth. And um, sloth, sloth is, is the sin that renders you incapable of deriving that joy. So someone who is on the careerist treadmill um, and who sacrifices the well-being of his or her own children to the velocity of the treadmill, okay, that person would be surprised to find out that, uh, uh, um, uh, the, that the, the besetting sin in, in this life is in fact sloth, right? Um, we see it all the time, and we're all supposed to be racing after some prestige or whatever it may happen to be. But, but my gosh, I, I, I give you an example. This is a great example of sloth here. This comes from the Princeton Alumni Weekly. Uh, my mater ferox was Princeton, um, which I, I, I call the black hole where faith and reason go to die. And um, so the Princeton Alumni Weekly, uh, is sent out to all the alumni as a way to part them from their money. Um, it comes out once a month, so I get the monthly, weekly. Um, <laughs> and I look in the back of it to see if any of my friends have died or, or done something notable in the class notes. And once I've determined that they are in fact still alive, um, I file the Princeton Alumni Weekly into where, where, where it belongs at my house, which is a receptacle underneath the kitchen sink. Um, anyway, one time I did not do that. One time I actually read an article. And, and in it, a woman, a Princeton alumna, was describing how she manages to fit her uh, career, um, I, I think it was a, a career in importance studies, um, <laughs> whatever, whatever it was. Uh, uh, and, um, well, she, how to fit that with having a child, you see. So, so she works at a computer, um, and she has taught her, her preschool son that he may approach the presence of mommy um, for one half hour period each afternoon between 3 and 3.30. That is the time that mommy has to give him. And then at 3.30, ding dong, you know, the bell rings, and he must go and leave mommy to her important work. And this way, she says, he learns that mommy has important things to do. Yes, the important things to do that are much more important than actually engaging the life of this amazing being that you've been given, um, instead of uh, doing whatever she was doing in the computer. 
Uh, I would say that that's a prime example of sloth. You know, there it is. Um, you know, why'd you even have the kid? I don't know. Uh, other questions? Dante question. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, if, you, if you're asking about contemporary English departments, I don't know. I mean, uh, I, I, I think that students find that pretty wearisome. Now, uh, uh, students will get the idea, um, and some of them will say, oh, I can do that, I can replicate that, so I can become a professor and ruin the experience of literature <laughs> for thousands of people, too, um, <laughs> at great expense to them and their parents. Um, uh, <laughs> yet, I sense from my visiting other places, you know, um, and I, I, it's not a scientific selection of places that I end up visiting, but I, I, I sense that there are plenty of people out there, maybe not concentrated so much, this school or that school, but, but some people everywhere, and a decent number of people in some places who love literature still, and who submit to its beauty and humility. Um, I know, for instance, even, I, I'm in a department of 22 people at Providence College. The person who hates my guts the most, okay, still gets along with me, and he's a church-going Episcopalian. And we don't really agree on much, and yet he teaches romantic poetry as poetry. He loves the poetry. And so in that sense, we are actually colleagues. Um, I, 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 I think it's out there, and it, it may be slowly returning. Okay? So I'm not really desperate here. You know? And, and uh, plenty of students actually ask me that question, or their parents ask me a version of that question. I really love literature. Where can I study it in graduate school? Which is an ironic thing to ask, because there are hundreds of graduate English departments across the country. But someone will ask, I really love literature. Is there any place where I can go? Um, the answer to that question is sort of, kind of. Um, but you have to look hard for the particular professors you want to study under, which, who are scattered about. The evangelicals, by the way, are all over this particular issue. And um, it, it may be interesting in a, in a generation to see um, the evangelicals um, more learned in the classical languages and in classical poetry and art than their secular counterparts. Um, if, if I meet uh, someone who is studying either Latin or Greek, some young person, I am inevitably in the company of a former homeschooled Catholic or evangelical. And I get invited to evangelical schools all the time. Okay? They want me to talk, and 
how, how strange this, how different this is from, say, 40 or 50 years ago, right? Um, what do you want me to talk about at your school? We want you to talk about Dante. We're reading the Divine Comedy. At evangelical schools, right? The secular school, the brown, brown uh, across the city from us, uh, if I picked a, an upperclassman at random from Brown University and asked, you know, what, what is the, what are the, what are the odds that that person has read any part of the Divine Comedy? I think we're talking single-digit percents, you know. But if I go to an evangelical school, that is increasingly not the case. They're reading Dante. They're reading Augustine. They're reading Aquinas. Um, they're reading Cervantes. They're reading Milton. They're not. They're not there yet, but. Uh, um, I actually like what I see in that quarter. And, and of course, then there are the upstart Catholic schools like Christian College. Uh, <laughs> other questions? Sir. Yeah, yeah. Uh, something that my wife and I talk about quite a bit. Uh, this is also something that, that many critics of literature do not understand. Um, if, if you have no category in your heart or you have no room in your heart for that kind of laughter, which delights in the being, even the foibles of another, a, a kind of laughter which is restorative, um, uh, and, and fundamentally humble because, of course, at the same time you're recognizing that you too are a silly person, um, then there are whole realms of literature that are going to be shut to you um, because laughter in your mind will always be associated with scorn. Okay? The, the, the kind of, um, a kind of um, uh, Christian irony that you find in much Christian poetry, Spencer, George Herbert, you, you will not be able to hear because you have only one or two settings on your, your laughter control. Uh, snickering, sneering, and other things that begin with the letters S-N, you know. Um, and and I, I think Lewis is quite, C.S. Lewis is quite right about this in Screwtape Letters. He, he has Screwtape in one chapter recommend that, that the, um, the patient uh, be exposed as much as possible to a couple of young sophisticates who don't really believe in anything, don't really know that much, but laugh at things. And among them, he says, there is no true wit. Um, the joke is, all, is taken as already having been made. As you, it, it's, it's merely an expression of contempt. It's, it's flippancy. There, there is no mirth in it. It is as far as possible from any real joy. It does not open the mind. It does not open the heart. And it's a nice, easy path down to our realm below. Um, there's a deep pride in assuming that point of view. This is why um, I, I find, I, I'm, I am a baseball fan. I watch the St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, and and, and uh, I, uh, go Albert. Um, I, I, I'm forced when I'm watching the Cardinals to endure the commercials. And the commercials are unrelieved scorn, nastiness. And I'm asking myself, what kinds of people would say, yes, I want to buy that product 
because it's associated with nastiness and stupidity. <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand that. My, my wife, my wife uh, when we were first married, um, uh, taped some television shows, like uh, I mean, old television comedies, silly old comedies like the Andy Griffith Show and so, and so forth, uh, uh, from, a, from a channel in South Carolina, say in the late 80s. If we watch those now, the, the, the most striking thing about them is not the show, we, we know the Andy Griffith Show, but the commercials. They were actually, most of them, nice. I mean, at least not nasty. Disgusting. Um, and and it, it's, it's really kind of, kind of, kind of creepy to, to, to do that experiment. Um, there is a certain good humor there. Um, now, it's not one of the greatest virtues in the world. You know, good humor is not going to save you. But uh, it's not a bad thing either. And I find in, in the sophisticated, cynical, modern, edgy world, no humor at all, really. I mean, I, what, what could possibly make me laugh? Um, I, I don't enjoy despising, scorning, sneering. Um, you know, I mean, maybe some people delight in that. I don't know. Um, does, that does that help a little bit? And, and, and to have that, that, that fundamental good humor, I think, re requires a certain attitude of humility. Because you understand um, that you're enjoying the silliness of someone who is just like you. Silly. Do you know what the, the word silly originally means? Maybe, the, blessed, yes. The, it, this this kind of gets at the idea. Silly is German selig, meaning blessed. Um, the silly one is innocent. And then from being innocent, it came to mean um, uh, not knowledgeable about something, uh, clueless, um, uh, foolish. But. The original signification suggested a kind of blessed foolishness, like the blessedness of St. Francis. St. Francis of Assisi, truly silly. And you could laugh at St. Francis without scorn, because you were also laughing with him, and you knew he was much greater than you are. Um, does that help? OK. Thank you again.